Okay, I got a thumb and I'm ready to go, I guess. Take the glasses into a place where I won't lose them. Can you see my new technique there? I hope you can. I'm going to start out really fast with this uh, BA BA 1.1. What is that? I I can't remember what it is. Uh, 529, sorry. 529, and now we have this BA uh, 2.2, 529.2, sorry. Okay, that's our COVID situation right now. And I did that wrong. I can see that I did that wrong. There's two ones in there. That's the genomic uh, sequencing. And what they've decided is is that uh, this is a derivative. In other words, what's happening is is I don't have two different Omicrons now. I have one Omicron. Um, and this did not descend from this. The, the BA2 did not descend from the BA1. The BA2 uh, originated in a different line completely, I think, is what they're saying nowadays. It's a derivative, and it is, it is not directly a, m- a mutation from the first one. The whole point of this is this is this situation. Let me see if I can. This situation that we've got is such that this COVID is going to be with the world for quite some time. And that, to me, is fascinating, especially now that I see Russia again militarizing. So we have a worldwide pandemic, and we have the Russian military functioning at a very high level aggressively. Those, of course, are end of the age of the Gentile stuff. And so we we could easily be in that situation. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm moving my mic up and down based on how it's bouncing back into me, and I, I'm hoping I'm doing good things. But anyway, the whole point of that is is that if we are at the end of the age of the Gentiles, then Ezekiel uh, uh, 38 is coming, and, and I've made that comment many, many times, and there's just so much going on. The, the darkness that we see, the, the hatred for uh, male and female from Genesis uh, 1 through 3, for example, that we are, as a country, we are devolving into complete darkness. In my view, I, I just can't see any other perspective that would prevail. We have, we have places where you can shoplift. It's illegal in San Francisco to just walk into a store and steal anything you can get. No one will stop you. It's not legal, but it's permitted. And so we have all kinds of weird things going on that I would not have ever expected in my lifetime. It's a completely different country than it was when I was a younger man. Okay, just that for now. I'm just hoping that what we're watching is between the Omicron, the worldwide pandemic, and now the militarization of Russia. I'm hoping, believe it or not, I'm hoping that this is uh, Ezekiel 38 and the end of the age of the Gentiles. So we'll see. Could be wrong. Been wrong many times on this kind of subject. So don't listen to me. Here we go. July or January, July, January 30th, 2022. Lecture discussion number 161 on the book of Joel. Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Genesis. And that's what we are in today. And so here we go again, continuing where we somewhat left off, somewhat being an operative adjective there uh, last week. So where are we now? What has been settled? And that, of course, is another artifice because nothing is ever settled or completed with Scripture. There is always another layer. Every time you read the Bible, say to yourself, what did I not get? Because there's always another one. There's always something amazing that awaits discovery. The better question would be uh, not uh, where are we now or what has been settled, but uh, what have we found that might lead us to something of a great treasure? What did we miss? Essentially, then everything is, is relative. Uh, my great treasure, my great value definition may not be your great value definition, but we always should look at the Bible and say, I've, I've left something out. I didn't see something that was there. Ah, and uh, because I possess the most holy of the most holy dry erase board markers, I get to uh, uh, I get to predestine. And yes, I'm using predestined intentionally because it makes people upset, and it uh, motivates me. I go, what can I do? What can I say today that would bother somebody? Oh, I'll say that I predestine. And in exercising my predestinational authority, I choose the subject today. And of course, the subject once again will be. Dust. Because I am fascinated by dust. Let me get rid of Omicron here. 
if I was going to be a little bit more authentic, and I'll put this on the board, I think it's valuable that I do, I wouldn't be just choosing the word dust because that's the English word. I would be choosing the Hebrew words as well. You'll see them this way. Oops, there's an H in there. I'll try to hurry. So those are the Hebrew words for dust. Uh, it'd be, it would be uh, A, that's a long A, a pay, a pair, a fair. So you want the long A sound in it. And the first mention of that word, of course, is in Genesis 2-7, where he uses the word a pair. A pair, a par, something you'll hear it. You'll also see an A-T. I should put that on there. You'll see a, 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 an A-T. And so those are the Hebrew words that have been translated into our English. And so that... Uh, and there's another Hebrew word involved in all of this, of course. And this is this is dust, but there's another Hebrew word, and it is uh, H-A-A-R-E-S. Sometimes it's just uh, um, R-E-S or A-R-E-S. And again, you have those long A sounds. Has. And I, of course, am not very good at pronouncing these kinds of things. And so that, that this is dust, and this is soil. Land, ground. So there we have this situation. Sometimes you'll see earth in there, but that's the translations. Basically, one is dust and the other one is uh, uh, earth, uh, land, or soil. And you should be aware that there's a position in the theological realm that says that man, Adam, uh, was made from dust, a, a pair, a fair. Hip up here. Okay. So he was made from this. That's the word used. Genesis 2-7, obviously. And that, uh, and you'll also see this with respect to Adam. Adamah, which means, uh, Giving you that that understanding that something's going on with him, which with regard to the dust and that tent. So if you see this a a pair and adama, that translates to dust of the soil or dust of the ground. And notice this adam adama. Adam literally means soil or dirt. It's not a coincidence that that's what the Hebrew is. That's the the name that God gave Adam. What's the reason? If I name my my son dirt. What would I be saying? Now, God does that. He names him dirt, essentially. Why did he do that? What's he trying to say? So, these people that have this other position, is that, and by they I mean them, those, and, and they, and they claim exclusive, exclusionary jurisdiction over all of this Hebrew scholastic information or scholarly information. They see a distinction between this is Genesis. They see a distinction. I'll just... Put this on the board really fast. I know this is quite boring. I get all of that, but it's very important. But they see a distinction between Genesis 1.24 and Genesis 2.7, which uh, is something we need to cover. And so they say that there's a difference between 1.24 and 2.7. What do I mean by that? I reply to that really quickly. I reply to that by going, well, wait a minute. What about Ecclesiastes? 3.20, 3.20, what about Romans 5.14, okay, what about Genesis 1.20, I'm sorry, yeah, you know, 1.20 to almost 1.30, almost all of one, almost all of chapter 1, 1.21, obviously. I see them differently than they do. And so when they say that uh, there's a difference here between 1.24 and 2.7, I look at these other verses and I look at this completely different than they they look at it. And it comes down to this, um, me thinks it don't mean what you think it means. You'll keep saying that word. So what is this all about? And I just kind of threw it up on the board or almost vomited it up on the board here. But let me see if I can clean it up. 
There are those who assert that Genesis 1.24 signifies that animals are not made from the same dust as Adam because they see this animals made from hehes and Adam made from a peh. Okay? That's what they see. So they're saying, whoa! Genesis 1.24 demonstrates that animals are not made from the same dust as Adam. And that's the distinction that they they, they have. Uh, the discussion comes down to the translation of uh, Genesis 1.24, which is disputed. And my advice is consistent on these kinds of matters. When you see this kind of debate, just always say the same thing. If you come up with a position like this also on your own, if you think that this is the right thing, be very, very careful. Don't cast off overwhelming scriptural tenets because one verse is translated in a way that seems to be antithetical. And, and I believe that's what's happening here. The, the one verse that appears to be awry, in this case 124, is not awry. There are no inconsistencies in the Bible, none. And those who blather, blather about otherwise are easily refuted and always wrong. You start from the place that the Bible in its original form is absolutely flawless. I do understand the translations. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing today. But all of that subject is for another day. Just tell yourself that there's a there's an answer. You did not find uh, an inconsistency. You did not find a contradiction in the Bible. You think you did. And people will convince you that you did. But you didn't. And all it takes is a little bit of time, a little bit of interest. And you will find out that that is the case. So... This Genesis 124 debate falls into that aforesaid category that I just brought up, which requires that the Hebrew be understood. We have to understand these words as best we can. Now, we're not Jews. We will never be able to understand it as they do. We don't have the Masoretic text. We don't study it. We're not uh, in a rabbinical school very often. Okay, some are. Some of you are very proud of you for taking this on. You've learned Hebrew and you're, you're battling the battle. But the, again, the Bible is perfect in its original form, and thus the challenge becomes contextual because we do not have the original manuscript. What do I mean by that? I have to look at what, everything that's in this argument, all the passages, or that passage, and say, what is that passage trying to say? Again, me thinks it does not say what you think it thinks. I hit my own microphone, made me a big mess. Uh, so... Uh, and again, we don't have the original translate, uh, translations or original manuscripts. We have translations, and which is why you cannot, again, arrive at a position as the, of the meaning without accumulating all of the pertinent information. Everything that's applicable, everything that's complementary, everything that's correlative, you have to get it all. Now you can begin to make a decision whether or not 124 is contradicting or, or is different, distinct from Genesis 2.7. It's not... It, I'm going to say it's contradicting Ecclesiastes 3.20. But they're going to say it's, it's uh, not complementary to 2.7. It's distinctive of Genesis. So and once you have all those connective passages that you can find and you can properly assess then that what you think is irreconcilable. And again, it may not mean what you think it means. So, Genesis 1.24, the most accepted English translation of the Masoretic text, or the Codex Leningradensis, sorry, it's hard to say, it used to be called the Codex Petersburgensis, or the Aleppo Codex. Those are different Hebrew manuscripts. And if you really want to get going on this thing, you have to go through all of those manuscripts and try and investigate them and try to figure out which one has the proper translations taken from it. Okay, here's Genesis 1.24. Let's try it and see how we do in Hebrew class sort of today. And God said, this is how it actually reads in my view now. This is what I think is the correct translation of 124. So if you have a Bible and you want to read along with your translation, this is what I think your translation came from. And God said, let bring forth the earth, the creature living according to its kind animals and creeping things and beast of the earth according to its kind and it was so. It almost sounds like Yoda said that, right? The words translated earth are hecharis or eris down here. Hecharis is also rendered 
Harez. So the words for earth are the same here in Genesis 1.24. The point that uh, the they, the them, and the those attempt to construct is that Harez is not Epha. And so far, we agree there. I agree with them. Harez is not a pair. So when I say we agree, I mean me. Harez is not a pair. Wow. Let's all go home. We're done. Hold hands. We solve it. Or not. The problem arises when the them, they, those claim and assert that Genesis 1.24 is saying that the animals are not made from dust, but instead only from soil or from land. So our ground, they're not equal to Adam. Adam has better dirt than the animals do. And therefore, they conclude that only mankind, them they those say, is made from the dust of the ground. Animals are made from the ground, they say. And you just go, what? what? Wait a minute here. Adam is only mankind is made from the dust of the ground, but animals are made from the ground. Notice how they separate the dust from the ground. And you start thinking to yourself, is this a, a distinction without a difference or with a difference? Does Genesis 1.24 say that the animal dirt is different from the mankind dirt? Did it say that? And is, is mankind superior to animals because of the physical body is made from dust and the animal's physical body is not? Is that, that is their view. That's a question. I, I ask their view in a question. Do you really think man is superior because of this? And the answer is yes. They believe that man being made from a different substance in their view has a superiority. So, what does the coextensive parallel verses have to say about that? So, go find all the verses. Let's find out. And you should keep in mind that there are two groups here. I got, I got group one. Actually, I got three. Group two, but we'll worry about group one and group two, and then we'll throw in group three in a minute. So, when you get into these kind of theological arguments. Here's what you got to do. Figure out what sides are who. Group 1 teaches that man is superior because man's body is made from the dust of the soil. Group 2 uh, teaches that man is superior because animals have no existence. No soul, spirit, mind, or consciousness. No nefesh shaya or haya. Oops, what happened? Okay. Which button did you push just for the record? EQ. EQ? Oh, okay. Oops. Do that. <laughs> Everybody, I'm learning the board while he's preaching. Terry is over there pushing buttons and having just the greatest time ever. Okay. We know that group two that says that, that they teach... It's a predominant view. I'm I'm sorry, but it is. I know it's wrong, but that's okay. Group two says that uh, man is superior because animals have no nafesh rachaya, or haya. No existence, no soul, no spirit, no mind, no consciousness, nothing. Animals are just nothingness, essentially. And and they go to nothingness. And if they are nothingness, then, of course, they stay nothingness. They're always nothingness. That's a inside of time or outside of time position. And we know that group two is misguided. As some might say that they're idiots, not me. I, I'm polite. I would never say that group two is an idiot. And of course, uh, I might infer it. Group one, at least they say, they understand the meaning of nefesh They can see that animals are living beings, that they are immortal, and therefore we say yay for group one. Did I get that right? Yeah, group one. And the, but the consistency here is this superiority element here between the two groups. Both desire to have superiority. And I want to know, why do you think that the body of animals are inferior to the bodies of human beings? And why do you want to think that? Is this an image question? This eventually will go to the image definition, the image of God. And I found a position from a fantastic guy, just fantastic one of the best theologians, uh, I believe, of the, of the 20th century. I won't use his name. Okay, I will. He deserves to be known as amazing. His name was Henry Morris. And I have his Bible, and it was given to me by a couple of people that I don't remember. 
They don't seem to remember either. They're just staring off into the... But they gave me a Henry Moore's Bible. Whoever they were. But they did. They gave me one. And, and of course, it's a treasure and a commentary. It's a Henry Moore's commentary. And I highly recommend it. And I would think that you would want it. But Henry Moore says in his commentary that only man can worship God. And I go, wow. How about Revelation 5? I mean, I can go all over the Bible and find evidences that the animals worship God. Mark one thirteen. I mean, it's everywhere. Okay? So, you will find these kinds of views and you have to say to yourself, wow, where does it all come from? Is it just, just no one took the time to really investigate? And typically that's the case. You just, you hear something, you hear it, you hear it your whole life and you think it must be true because of the amount of propensity or the repetition of it. And it's not necessarily the case. Animals clearly have the capacity to worship God and they are described in scripture as doing so. And so we have this, this problem here in group three that's, notice I have group three in parentheses because it's the smallest of the three groups. Group three responds uh, to Genesis 121. I'm sorry, 120, the, the 120, let me just read it. It responds to this Genesis 124, 27 conclusion of group one. And group two, of course, likes this because it does agree with their issue of superiority and image. And I'm going to respond. Group three is going to respond. That'd be my group. That would be our group. I hope uh, we're going to say Genesis one, Genesis 121 is a problem for you. We're going to say Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 3:20, as you know, is a problem for you. Uh, Genesis 9:12 uh, through 17, Genesis 7:22, Revelation 5:11 through 13, Acts 10: 9 through 15, First Timothy 4:4, 4, 4, Romans 5:14, 4, and I got 50 more. That's a problem for that. This doesn't work. If I go out and get into all the rest of the verses, it doesn't work. All of those passages I just ran off all validate that the dust of the bodies of mankind is the exact same as the dust of the body of the animals. They're absolutely the same. All came from the same dust. The bodies of physical death return to the dust, the same dust. That's the group three position. We all say, yay. And now to be charitable, and I am philanthropically inclined. Um, philanthropically inclined. I'm going to get that pick in there. Uh, only philosophically, of course, because it, to be philanthropical, you have to not be economically challenged. And so I like thinking of myself as charitable, but I don't ever produce any charities uh, economically, but that uh, hopefully I make it up for other ways, like fixing your bathrooms. Okay. Uh, group one has some idea of the significance of the dust. So I give them kudos for that. They understand the nefesh, ruach, shaya. So again, they get, they get credit uh, they, and they deserve it for that. God has made, or made the bodies of his, of his eternal living beings from something. And that something is a degradation. It's high entropic particles. High entropy particles. Group one asks, why would God do this? Which is an excellent question. So again, great credit for group one. They're doing wonderful here. What is God saying? Who did he say it to? And who heard him when he did what he did? Because it is a message. It is obviously something that he is trying to get across to someone. Dust today, as we know dust today, it's filled with death, isn't it? It's decayed materials. Indoor dust is animal, human, skin cells, food particles, dust mites, all kinds of stuff in dust. And outdoor dust has got insects everywhere in it and pollen and pollution and sand and soil and all of it is degraded material. And Genesis 1.21, which I produced down here and say, hey, you got to deal with 1.21 if you got this view on 124. 121 forestalls the interpretation that Genesis 124 is evidence that animals are created from a different dust from mankind. It fights it. To repeat, the bodies, the bodies of animals and the bodies of mankind is what we're talking about here. The physical machinery. We're not talking about the consciousness, at least with group one. Group two, they, they're way out there, even though they dominate. But they can't defend their position. They never could defend their position. And their position, again, as I've said many times, is evolutionary atheism. And they don't even care. 
They want to be man, they want mankind to be superior in some way. And they're not satisfied with the image of God. They have to have some kind of physical attribute, they believe. Or they have to say only men can worship God. Or things like that. It's just, it's just wildness, in my view. Okay. So we're talking about the physical machinery, not the consciousness, not the mind, not the spirit, not the soul. And of course, the contemporary church is replete with leaders who advance the view that mankind has no sameness with animals. As I just said, with respect to self-awareness, with respect to existence, with respect to will, with consciousness, sentience, soul, spirit. They cast aside all of Genesis 1.21 through 1.30. They cast aside Genesis 9, Genesis 7.15, and Ecclesiastes 3.18 through 20. Revelation 5, they get rid of all of this stuff. Psalm 36, Romans 5.14, to repeat them again. There are so many diverse views on these subjects, and most of which, to be blunt here, are incomplete and unsound, including group 3. Anyway, Genesis 1.21 in the literal Hebrew. So let's go through this. The, the literal Hebrew translated to what most of your Bibles will say the literal Hebrew to English. So here it is. So created. Elohim. That's God, the us. 126 Genesis. So created God. Sea creatures. Great. And every living things, which is nefesh, ha, ha, ha. Exactly those Hebrew words for every living thing. So let me repeat it again. So created God. Sea creatures. Great. And every living thing that move, or I'm sorry, everything living that moves, with which abounded the waters, according to their kinds. Ooh, let me repeat that. According to their kinds. And every bird winged, according to its kind. And saw Elohim God that good. That's the literal Hebrew. Notice a couple of things. According to its kind, according to their kind. Genesis 1.24 also includes according to its kind, twice. So 121 and 124 have this according to its kind. And it goes on from there. Clearly, according to its kind or their kind is a point of emphasis. Why does God repeat according to their kind, according to its kind, over and over again? Why does he do that? need to know. What does it have to say about animals and human beings? What's he saying with that phrase? He does it six times. It's got to be important. Excuse me. I submit that according to its kind is is way beyond um, what we think. Way be, I'll see one point or two. Sometimes there'll be two or three points based on some commentators' understanding of that. But I think it's way past that. It, it, uh, it, it has importance that we have yet to even understand. Genesis one twenty five repeats it three times with respect to the land animals. Obviously, according to its kind, carries some deep concept. And I submit it goes far beyond reproductive reproductive integrity, which is what you see the most of the time. I'm starting to hear, I'm starting to get some feedback up here, Terry, if that's, if that's what you're trying to deal with. I don't know what to do. I can drop that down, maybe. Okay, obviously, again, this according to its kind has an incredible importance and and I think again it goes way past reproductive integrity which is again what you'll see most of the time it's a a profound truth it's a profound design from God the point for today yay finally a point is that Genesis 121 comes before Genesis 124 I know wow that's what amazing expository skill this guy's got 121 is before 124 the verses before 124 the three verses before 124 is Genesis 121. Who could have seen that, huh? That's, but that's what, what we need to notice. Genesis 120 and Genesis 121 both establish the nefesh ha-ruach principle. The living soul, the living being, the living creature principle. The foremost word here is living as Christ defines it. He is the I am. I put this on the board quite a few times this ego emi very important that is the I am whoops I forgot the A when he's saying I am that's the Greek ego emi the living being 
The living being holds eternity and, and eternal and existence and beingness. Rene Descartes had this word he called I amness, essentially. It's not really a word, but Descartes was right. He understood that I am was so important. He said, I think, therefore I am. And again, that's the beingness. And so when we start to talk about what Christ means when he says living soul or living creature, what he means, he means that there is eternity. Living being, when he says it, holds this eternal eternity uh, element to it, this I amness of Descartes and consciousness and existence and beingness. The Elohim, the triune God, the 126 of Genesis, us, has given this and he intended for mankind to know why he did it. Why did he do this? And generally mankind, unfortunately, is what? That's right, we're clueless. Some might say stupid. Not me. I prefer a softer, more refined adjective. we're, We're dumb. The Bible in Proverbs 122 says that men are simple. Also calls us fools. We lack wisdom. That's what the Bible says. Don't don't throw rocks at me. I'm just the messenger again. I, I deliver the pizza. I don't make it. So if nefesh hahaya or haya, if that precept, that principle is in Genesis one twenty and one twenty one. Now again, Genesis one twenty and Genesis one twenty one. This is this is math comes before Genesis 1.24. So if you're going to have a position on 124 Genesis, you ought to read what came in front of it. And that's where the nefesh, roah, shahar, hayah precept is. This living beingness, this I am, this existence. That's what he says about animals over and over and over again in Genesis 1.20 all the way to 1.30. Okay, so then the bodies of the living beings in the sea were made from something. I have living beings in the sea. Nefesh, eternal, existing, forever, consciousness, soul-given beings. And they're living in the sea. And that's and they were made from something. What do you suppose they were made from? Obviously, it's logical that what they were made from. I believe, I think that something that they were made from was the dust of the earth. And I think I can make that case as strongly, uh, as strong as possible, at least for, for today in the short time we have. God was making a statement. The dust would be used for a specific purpose. He got the dust, the ha. He got the dust, and it would be used for a specific purpose. Now where am I in the Bible? Go find all the other passages. Those of you who have shouted out Exodus 8.17, you get a cookie. Because what did he do with the in the Apach in Exodus 8.17? What did he do with it? He did something with it. Exodus 8.17. If you're going to talk about this, you're going to think there's a difference here, and you've got to go figure out what happened there. Exodus 8.17, is that germane to Genesis 1.24? Oh, yeah, baby. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Are you serious? It absolutely is germane. You have to have. You start talking about 2.7 in Genesis, and you start saying that 1.24 is different than 2.7, then you've got to deal with Exodus 8.17. And we should read the Hebrew to the literal English of Exodus 8.17. So here it is, as best as I believe it's actually laid out. And they did. So, four stretched out Aaron his hand with his rod and struck the dust. What word do you think is there? If you said, hey, yeah, the same dust that's in 127, then you did great. The exact same word. Do you think that God knew that that word would be both in Genesis 2-7 and Exodus 8-17 through Moses? Do you think that they had that all worked out, the two of them? He is so lucky. He really is. And they did so. 
for stretched out Aaron his hand with his rod and struck the hair of the earth. How is? Uh-oh. Now we're down here. He puts them together. The dust of the earth. And it became lice, which is incredible. He could have made anything, but he didn't. He makes lice. Why does he make lice from the ape hair? And I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but I'm doing the best I can. Give me credit for effort. And it became lice on man. And what do you think the word for man is? If you guess this one, oh my goodness, look at you go. Adamah. So he's taking you right back to Genesis 2.7, Genesis 1.20, Genesis 1.21, Genesis 1.24. He's taking you right back there with the 8.17. All the dust, ape, whoops, what happened there? Something went boom. It wasn't my fault, I don't think. I just picked up paper. All the dust, a pair of the land, Ares, became lice throughout all the land, Ares, of Egypt. So all the dust, all of the dust of the land, every piece of dust in Egypt became what? Lice. How much dust do you think was in Egypt when he did that? How much lice did he have? Uh, in my view, Exodus 8:17 through 8:19 must be commemorated by the church. It should be shouted out from every pulpit. It should. Uh, it's amazing. 8:17 through 8:19. The the magicians, for example, Pharaoh's scientists. I like to call them Pharaoh's scientists. And let me read it for you. And work so the magicians with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but not they could. That's the Hebrew. So there was lice on man and animals. That's Exodus 8.19. No, I'm sorry, that's Exodus 8.17 through 18. And said the magicians to Pharaoh, the finger of God that. And so, aha. Here we have the first recorded attempt by the evolutionists to create, generate life from the so-called primordial soup. In 8.17. Those are your evolutionary scientists right there. The Pharaoh's evolutionary scientists. What did they quickly admit? They quickly admitted that dust into lice was an act of the finger of God alone. That's the finger of God. Just his finger. All we got here is a finger. He took all the dust in the land and he turned it into lice and he took all that lice and he put it on every human being and every animal. Now why did he do that? Human beings and animals are all covered with lice that used to be dust. Well, why would he do that? How deep is this statement that he's making? He's making it. You're, most people think, oh, he put lice on, on them and just to irritate them. He took the dust, he made the lice, and he put the lice on every single living animal and human being in Egypt. And how, again, how much lice was that? Think about that. How much lice do you think was on those people and those animals? So. The Pharaoh's evolutionary scientists quickly admitted that dust into lice was an act of God alone, and current evolutionary atheism remains delusional. Life cannot come from non-life. They keep telling us that it will. They keep telling us that it will come from some primordial soup, but it won't. The law of biogenesis, I say that often, I don't say it often enough. Life must come from him who is life, and Jesus Christ says, I am Ego, I am existence, I am beingness, beingness, ego, emi. I amness. That's a new word, I hope. I'll copyright it. But life must come from him who is life. It can only come from life. And that's what he's saying in John eleven twenty five. Only life himself can bring life out of dust, Genesis two seven. Okay, for today. Exodus eight seventeen clearly is a commentary on Genesis two seven. They fit together, hand glove, whatever you want to say. And of course also John eight six, John eight eight, Exodus thirty one eighteen, Exodus thirty four one, Luke eleven twenty, Daniel five five, all of those go into Genesis two seven. Now what is John eight six and eight eight? What did Christ do at eight six and eight eight of John? That's the woman, the temple prostitute who was brought out to be stoned, and what did Christ do? 
He put his finger into the dust. He did that in John 8, 6, and then he did it again in John 8, 8, 8. He put his finger into the dust two times. Why do you think he did that? And then we have Exodus 31, 18 and Exodus 34, 1. What's that? That's the finger of God doing something again. What is he doing there? He's making two stone tablets. He put his fingers into the stone tablets twice. Luke 11, 20, Daniel 5, 5 are also involved in this. As I said, don't have time today to do that. With that said, take, take notice of the obvious. Genesis 1, 20. And said God. Again, Elohim, us. Let abound the waters with an abundance of creatures living. And birds let fly above the earth. Halas. Across the face of the firmament, sky, air. Firmament is air or sky. Basic question. Does anyone ever suggest that the bodies of the sea creatures was made from water? No. How did the sea creatures get into the water? Were they made from water? Did did you ever say that the bodies of the birds were made from the air? No, that's not what he did, is it? It's obvious that he not what he when this convoluted approach with Genesis one twenty four, I just gave you the Genesis one twenty four position of group one. They believe that the animals were made from rocks, and therefore you have to be consistent and you have to say the sea creatures were made from water and the birds were made from air. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So, because he says this in 124, and said God, let bring forth the earth, the nefesh hayah, the living creatures. So, and said God, let, let bring forth the earth, creatures living according to its kind. So he talked about the creatures in the sea, he ta- talked about the creatures in the air, and then he talked about the creatures on the earth. Surely the water and the air, don't call me surely, surely the water and the air and the land are the mediums of these animals. Right? The habitat that these creatures primarily live in. The birds are in the air primarily, not always after land. But they're overwhelmingly in the air compared to us and the others. The sea creatures are overwhelmingly in the water and the earth creatures or the land creatures are overwhelmingly on the land. And that is all that 124 is saying. It's got air, water, land. Why does there three things, three mediums? That's the question of 124. 120 through 124. There isn't any difference, is what I'm trying to say. Genesis 1.24 is consistent with Genesis 1.20 and 121. Therefore, all the bodies of creatures living, nefesh ruachahah, are made from the same dust. Again, Ecclesiastes 3.18.20. This is a critical truth. I'm pounding away at this because you need to know that all the bodies are made from the same dust. Why does he do it that way? Don't throw it out because you think somebody has a, because of a goofy Genesis 124 mistake. Because then you get rid of the critical truth that all the bodies are made from the same dust. That's critical. How is that critical? Crucial. The evolutionary scientific community of the Pharaoh, Genesis, I'm sorry, again, Exodus 8, 17 through 19, they reveal a great truth. They reveal this relationship between the finger of God and the breath of God. So, so you know, obviously Christ, when he's digging in the dirt, right? In John 8, he's saying, I'm the one that made everything from dust. That's my finger there. My finger here, my finger there. I'm the one that brought the, the lice out. That's my, that's my finger. I'm the one that wrote on the tablets. Do you think the Pharisees didn't notice that? He's standing there going, I am God himself in the flesh and you don't even know who I am. Emphasis on I am. So always make that connection between John 8 and Exodus 8, 17 and 19 and and then Genesis 2, 7. Okay. (coughs) I got off track there. Excuse me. (coughs) We have this, the again... One thing they did do is they said there's a relationship between the finger of God and the breath of God, the breath of the spirit of life. So there's two aspects. Twice the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments. Twice the finger of God wrote in the dust. Christ, again, he was declaring himself to be the finger of God. He's the author of the Ten Commandments. He does all of that. It's the finger of Jesus Christ that brings forth the bodies from the dust. He says, I am the finger that brought Adam out of the dust. I am the finger that brought every single animal out of the dust. Think about that. That's my finger that does that. What's he saying in John 11.25? He is the resurrection. He is the creator 
of the bodies. Then he's the resurrection of the bodies. And he's also what? The life that's in the body. That's all me. He brought the body. He brought forth the bodies from the dust. At Genesis 1.24. Genesis 2.7. And he's going to bring them back out of the dust again. Because where do the bodies go when, you, when the body dies? Back into the dust. Who gets them out of the dust again? He does it again. That's resurrection. I am the resurrection and I'm also the life that's inside the body. Why does he do this? What is he saying and who is he saying it to when he does it in Genesis 2-7 and Genesis 1-20 and Genesis 1-21? Who is he talking to because there's no human being to hear him? So why is he making bodies out of dust and then breathing his life into them? Why is he doing that? Again, he is also the breath of life. John 20-22, he's the breath of life. He's the one who is the life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.45, John 1.2-4, Colossians 1.15-18. So he's connecting dust and breath. Now, John 20.22, when he said to... Here's what it says. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Why did Christ breathe on his disciples? Genesis 2-7, Genesis 7-15, Genesis 7-22, Genesis 6-17. Christ breathes on his disciples and Christ breathes on Adam. Genesis 2-7. Puts his finger in the dust, John 8. Puts his finger in the dust, 2-7. Puts his finger in the dust, Exodus 8-17. Try to put all that together. I'm repeating it because I don't want you to, to miss any of it. It is important. It is, again, crucial. I use that word too many times. But it is crucial that all of us realize that every living, I'm sorry, we've got to realize that everything that Jesus Christ says and does, especially so in the Gospel of John, all of that's going to connect back to Genesis 1 through 2-7. All of it is. I am the light of the world. He's the light that came to darkness. I am the the light of life. Again, he's the light that made life. That's his finger, if you want to think of it that way. Okay? All of it's going to connect back to to the creation of man and animals. Anyway, all of this thus far to make the case that the primeval dust, the dust that God selected to form the bodies of the living souls, has a message. I want to know how much dust did he need? Does he got a dump truck full of dust? Does he got a handful of dust? Well, he got a big hand. How much dust did he grab off of the earth? Because... He's doing it. He's saying it to somebody. It's not saying it to us. We're we're post-activity here. Somebody saw him take the dust, form bodies, and breathe into it. Who saw him do that? Had to be them. There's no other audience available. Of the realms, that's the only realm that's there. So he does that. And would they know what dust he grabbed? Would they know why that dust was there? Anyway, God selected this primeval dust, the dust that he took to form the bodies of the living souls. It's a message. It's also a testimony to the angelic realm, the host, both the faithful and the unfaithful, the fallen. So he is preaching. You want to think of him as really good at preaching. That's what he's doing. He is telling them something. He's responding. And that's not the proper term. That's a heretical, blasphemous term because it's inside of time. But think of it like he is, he's, he's come and he's going to tell them something. He's going to show them something. And it's obviously applicable to them. And so when the mineral kingdom of Ezekiel 28, now you see how I made that leap, right? The dominion of the star fallen, that's Satan. The anointed cherub, that's also Satan. The son of the morning star, that also is Satan. So when the mineral kingdom of Ezekiel 28, when that, when that was taken from Satan, because Satan was removed, and that Eden was removed, Ezekiel 28. And, and it was seemingly completely destroyed. By all evidences for the angelic realm, they, would, they couldn't see it. It appeared to have been annihilated because it's enveloped in total, utter darkness. And you've heard me describe this phase, this state of the mineral Eden as being without a single photon of light. Not a single piece of light there. And so it was for Lucifer's throne room. 
gone. No angel could see what, what, couldn't see it. You gotta have photons to see it, can't see it. No angel could see what, what must have been once a place of unimaginable beauty and magnificence as it's described in scripture. And how do you suppose when God deposed, when he, when he pulled Satan away from the mineral Eden, and not only did he, did he get rid of the mineral Eden and put it in total darkness, but he also covered it completely with water, didn't he? It's completely covered in water and darkness. Now, why did he cover it in water and darkness? Again, he's doing things for a reason, and everything that he does carries an incredible message. And so how do you suppose Satan and his one-third responded to this act of God when he destroyed uh, Satan? Not destroyed it, when he removed Satan from a position of authority. What do you think? How did they think they responded when they could no longer find the mineral eating at all? It was gone as far as they were concerned. I, I submit that they were overjoyed by that. God couldn't, what, what they're saying, we rebelled. We brought tremendous amount of sin into the heavenly estate and onto the mineral Eden. And we rebelled and God responded by wiping it out. That's what they said. Wouldn't you agree? Consider the lie of Satan is that God annihilates those who reject him. You get in his way, he has to wipe you out because he has no solution for sin, right? So he has to wipe it all out. So they're overjoyed. They're jumping up and down. They're biologically, if God annihilates those who reject him, then logically there's no free will. Again, that's the lie of Satan. There's no existence, as you know. Ache. Right? Gotta do that. I haven't said by the way yet. Marked it. In this case, the abode of Satan and his army was covered in water and complete, utter, total darkness. What's the obvious question? What does that mean? Why did he put him in darkness? Darkness, of course, represents death and sin, as we talked about many, many times. But the real question for me is how long were they that way? Obviously, I want to know stuff like, did God give them a warning before he did what he did? God always gives warning, so I say yes. How much warning did he give them before he taught, he took them out of power? Before he removed Satan from his position in Eden as the anointed cherub? Because he's got to remove him, and he did. How long did he allow him to go? How much time before Satan and his followers were effectively evicted? Did God repeat the 40 days and the 40 nights? Because again, mankind has no idea why there's 40 days and 40 nights. Is there, was there, is the 40 days and the 40 nights of Noah, was that the first 40 days and the first 40 nights, or was that a repeat of the other 40 days and the other 40 nights? How, how, what does the 40 and the 40 represent? In other words, how much interrelationship is there, was there between the two, the twice floods? There's two floods. Why? What, how much connectivity? The Genesis 1-2 flood and the Genesis 7 Noatic flood. As you know, I'm predisposed to call the Genesis 1-2 flood, uh, that, that flood state, the satanic flood. Or if you want, the angelic flood. Both then would have great wickedness as a fundamental characteristic, both the Genesis 1-2 and the Genesis 7. One, one might assume that God's promise to never flood the earth a third time. He makes a promise. I'm not going to flood the earth again, right? I'm not going to do it. That would be the third time. The third flood. I said, I'm not going to do it. That somehow provides, I believe, an explanation on the inner relationship between the satanic flood and the noatic flood. They're going to have connectivity. Everything he does has connectivity. Everything. He's a connective kind of guy. Everything in the universe fits with something else in the universe. It's the way it is. Our bodies are designed that way. The interconnectivity in our physical bodies are incredible. One could reasonably refer to these events, the angelic flood and the ha-adamic flood, or the mankind flood. See, I, I could call the noatic flood, I could call that the adamic flood, right? It would make just as much sense. Noah was the instrument, but what the cause ultimately was the sin of Adam. So that would be the ha-adamic, ha-adonima flood. So I got two floods. I got two writings of the laws. I got two writings in the dust. I got two kingdoms from the dust, animal and human, came out of the dust. I have two facets of the finger of God, the breath and the spirit of God. That's probably all accidental. 
coincidental, except for omniscience precludes that. And now the conventional position of the theological academics is that the finger of God represents God's omnipotence. That's what they say. The finger of God represents God's omnipotence, his power. And the magicians, who are also evolutionists, the, the, the original scientific evolutionists, the magicians of Pharaoh, they actually validated that. They said that's the power of God that did that. His finger, just his finger did that. That's how much power he has in one finger. He can turn all the dust into lice. So we have the breath of the spirit of life now. What is that? Well, I think I can make the case that that would be his infinite existence, his beingness, and therefore it becomes what? If the, if the finger is his power and the breath of the spirit of life is beingness, then the breath of the spirit of life would be his grace. That would be the grace of God. So I would have his power and his mercy. And everybody grunts in unison from all over the vast internet, Cliff Sabian audience. You know, everybody said, huh? What are you talking about? You idiot. It doesn't make any sense. How is his breath of life, his breath of existence, a demonstration of his mercy, love, and grace? How is that a demonstration of that? Well, the obvious answer is obvious. I think somebody gave me that. But they might have given me the obvious question is obvious. And I think that was Luke from Ohio. But it could have been a guy from England. I'm not positive. But I loved it so much. I have to steal it and pretend it's mine. And now it is mine and no one knows about anybody else. Okay, I'm going to make it. The grace of God obviously speaks of his free gift. His giving of something that can never be purchased, never be earned, never be paid for. The blood of Christ being the most illustrative or illustrative of this grace principle. You can't can't get it. It's impossible to get it. We could never acquire the blood of Christ, in other words, on our own merit. We can never earn it. We don't we cannot acquire it on our own. It has to be some other process. The blood of Christ is being is the most one the, the most representative of this grace principle. His life blood, one drop, how much does it cost? You've heard me say that forever. How much did it cost? If you had to buy a drop of blood, if you had one drop of his blood, what would you have? You would have eternal life. How much is that worth? How much money can you make? How could you possibly pay for it? His blood is infinitely, infinitive, infinitely, sorry. There's not enough, there's nothing. There's no possibility. What, what we call money is essentially zero compared to infinity. Because it's so small in comparison. His blood is infinitely costly. It's beyond time. Time can never catch God. Okay, that's me doing that. Time can never catch God. Time is inside of God. And therefore, it's consisting in Christ, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. It's inside Christ. So how much does eternal life cost? Again, repeating the question. The blood of Christ must be given. That's the only way you can get it. He has to give it to you. It must be a gift. It must be free or no one would be saved. If you had to go get it yourself, you had to go get your own oil, for example, you can never find that oil. That oil has to be given to you. If you're a bridesmaid, Matthew 25. And if if the blood of Christ Christ, uh, is not given, then no one would ever be saved. You see? He has to give it or there's no, no salvation. And if there's no salvation, then God's evil. I made that jump really fast. But you know the argument. Because if no one were saved, then God would have formulated a plan by, of salvation where none are saved. What's that mean? Well, that would mean that, that he lied. He gave you an opportunity to be saved, but it was impossible to be saved because you couldn't buy, couldn't earn, couldn't work. The only way that salvation can be given, the only way it's not a lie, I'm sorry, the only way that salvation can occur and the only way that it's not a lie is that it's given freely. It's a free grace of gift. And I've said that thousands of times. Anyway, okay, so by the way, as you know, how much does existence cost? Everybody's got it. Animals got it. Fallen angels have it. Fallen mankind rejectors of Christ, saved people. We all have existence. 
How do we get it? It's a gift. Why does God create living beings that are eternal? Again, the obvious answer is obvious. It's something that He wants to do. He wills to do it. Why does He want this? Why does He will it? What does God get from doing this? He can't get anything. Does that make sense? You can't, He can't get anything. Why can't He get anything? Because, one, we have nothing. And two, He has everything already. Genesis 13.22 He's the possessor of all things, including us. He possesses all of it. So you can't say, well, God doesn't have this. I'll buy him this. Shopping for God, the, shopping for the God Most High is, is doctrinally insulting. It's not just futile. It's dumb. Okay, so what, finish with this. What are the meanings of each according to its kind? Why does God repeat this six times from Genesis 121 to 125? I'm losing volume. Why does God repeat each according to its kind six times from Genesis 121 to 125? It obviously is critically important. Now, most people will say it has something to do with the programming system. It's a computer. It has a similarity to a computer. It's the, what would you call the basic networking system of a computer? The central processor. Uh, but it's it's far more than that. Uh, it's amazing. So they'll go to DNA. But it, remember, he's saying this to each according to its kind. Who's the audience for that? So it has more significance than we can imagine. So next week, we'll figure that out. Okay.